Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, no slides today, I know. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. One of, if not the most well-known parable of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We'll begin by reading those verses and then looking at them in three short parts. So here we read in verse 25 of Luke's gospel in chapter 10. And behold... A certain lawyer stood up and tested him, the hymn is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he, that's the lawyer, the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have heard of that parable before? Okay, a few. Um, Most of us, if not all of us, it's a very well-known parable of Jesus, and it teaches a very simple message, and the message is not hard to understand. Um, When we read in verse 31, first considering the, the story itself, that a certain priest came down upon the road where this man had been attacked by thieves and left for dead, we are to understand that a very religious person, a person who would have uh, you know, been considered by the people of that day and age to be safe in terms of heaven and hell, of judgment. A priest uh, did not do a compassionate thing, but instead steered clear of the individual 
and neglects, that's the right word I think, neglects the opportunity to do good. Then in verse 32, following the priest's neglect, there is a Levite, which is a man from the priestly tribe. Again, if you are looking for a group of Israelites who you would expect to be righteous, who would you expect to do well, a Levite, when he arrived at the same place, he came and he looked, and he also decided to go by on the other side of the road. So we have a man who is in a near-death situation, and we have two people who, by the understanding of the day, people would have anticipated were good moral, righteous, safe people in terms of the kingdom of God and judgment. And neither one of them help the near-death man. But then it says a certain Samaritan. Now, I am going to, to um, avoid a deep scholarly look into who Samaritans were because I'm not sure that it would be um, all that helpful. Instead, I will say that Samaritans were certainly not the kind of people that anyone would have thought were going to go to heaven when they died or had a justification before God as righteous people. They believed wrong things about God. Um, They did not hold to the law of Israel in any way, shape, or form. And because of that, Israelites, God's people, steered clear of Samaritans. And in fact, there had been much conflict between the people in times past. This goes way back for hundreds of years and had developed into this very contentious situation between Israelites and Samaritans. So they did not like each other, they did not live among each other, and they did not believe the same things. And yet we are told that a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, that is where the near-dead man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, that is, that is the observation to make here. He had compassion. The other two previously saw him, but did not have compassion. Because compassion is not merely something you feel. Compassion is something that you perform. And so, the other two, for whatever they felt when they saw the person did not help, did not do anything. In fact, the thing that they did could only be described as evil. But this man began immediately to do all of the right things. Again, this is not a righteous man. But he begins to do, he begins to do the right things. And it says he went, and at first he bandaged his wounds. Uh, the man was bleeding the man was uh, um, in a state of, of suffering that was going to lead to his expiration, and he puts it into that. And as he's bandaging the wounds, he begins to pour oil and wine as a sort of disinfectant and a, a treatment on the man's various gashes. And where things had been open and bleeding, um, now they are stopped and they are somewhat secured. And then he picks him up and he puts them over top of his, his animal, his ride. And it wasn't a two-seater, so he had to lead the animal then on foot. And he diverts his journey, and now he moves toward an inn. Um, there wasn't a hospital uh, down the road. There wasn't a, 
an emergency center. There was no phone to call for help, of course. We know all of these things. And so an inn was the nearest place where you could take someone where they could rest and recover. And inns were used in those purposes. And having gotten him to the inn, notice he doesn't just drop him off, but he stays with him for the day and the night. He tends to him. I don't know what that means. Perhaps in and out of consciousness, he feeds him or he gives him drink and he soothes him and he tells them that it's okay. He tells him as the man, you can imagine awakening startled into a situation and being told, just rest. It's all right. It's okay. Just rest. Sleep. And he stays. He spends the night with the man. And the next day, as he goes to depart, he leaves money for the innkeeper to provide for the man. Two denarii, a denarii commonly being recognized as one day's wage. Um, so he leaves enough money, essentially, for the innkeeper to be compensated as if the innkeeper was doing a full-time job. Take care of him, and whatever else you spend in the care of him, when I come again, I, I will pay the bill. Which is what would have to happen since the man had been robbed by thieves and had nothing himself to pay the innkeeper with, no possessions to trade. And so we see compassion. Compassion is uh, required of God's people in a fallen world. Um, I don't know if you have ever been in a situation at all comparable to what this man who had been left for dead uh, was in. Um, Probably not the exact same situation, but most of us, if we have lived long enough, have probably been in or been around similar situations. Um, as I thought about this and I considered what it must have been like for the man to wake up in a bed knowing that he did not get himself there and wondering what had happened and then being told just to rest for perhaps several days to recover. I thought of when I had been taken to the hospital with my appendix near rupturing, and I remember all the pain I was in. And if you're in intense pain and you're going to the hospital, at least if you're like, I do not go to the hospital easily or often willingly. Uh, I don't want to go there. I, I tend to believe, naively I understand, that if just given enough time, the pain will go away. Most of the time that's true. This was not going away, and so uh, Allison, after nagging me, is that an okay word to use from the pulpit, uh, all day long to go to the hospital, then was very upset with me that I told her now that it was nighttime that she needed to take me to the hospital. She didn't like that at all. She uh, reminded me several times that this could have been done earlier during the day, and uh, so that's just the woman I'm married to, but she did take care of me. Uh, she put me in the van, uh, she didn't walk me there on a mule, but we got to the hospital, and I remember after my surgery, uh, and, uh, laying in a hospital bed, and I remember being very, very relieved that it was okay for me to just rest. I did not have to do anything, and I remember how peaceful that rest was, that I could just rest, that that was an okay and if you've ever been in an intensely painful situation like that, it's amazing how quickly all of your other concerns of life go away. I, I did not spend a moment thinking about my job in that point in time. I didn't, didn't spend any time worrying about the kids. You know, as long as they were alive and not dying, I didn't care what they were doing at that point in time. I just wanted to feel better. That's all I cared about uh, in those moments. And I remember the relief of waking up not in pain after having been in pain for a long time and 
that, that was a very peaceful feeling because people had shown compassion to me. Not that I had deserved it, as Allison had reminded me, uh, but they had shown, and she was very sweet to me, by the way, for the rest of the time. It was just a small glimpse of, of her frustration, and then she was very kind and cared for me while I recovered. Anyway, compassion in someone's life can be a profound thing, can be a profound thing. There is no doubt when you look at our world today, really all over the world today, the difference that the love of Jesus demonstrated by people who love Jesus has accomplished in the world around us. Um, how many hospitals are named um, because of the Christian faith? How many services are named because of the Christian faith? Because someone believed in doing something, whether small or large, at some point in time, in the name of Jesus because of the command to show compassion like this. How many orphanages around the world are named in the name of Jesus Christ? They are all around us. They are all around us. I was listening to an intellectual who you may have heard of. His name is Malcolm Gladwell. He's not himself a Christian. And I was listening um, over the weekend to a couple of podcasts that he did back to back. And I like listening to those sort of things. It's not a recommendation, but I like to think through things that I haven't thought about before, which is his forte, to talk about things that I don't think about in the course of my life. And in back to back episodes, he talked about the importance that television played in the 1990s in changing the, the minds of the people and the culture in the United States of America and presented all sorts of studies and data around that. And after listening to him talk about it for about 40 minutes on his podcast, I found myself kind of nodding along saying, you know what, that's right. Television played a profound impact in developing the culture at that point in time. He talked about how the most important and well-known shows that we watch today often only have a fraction of the viewership that the big popular shows of the TGI Fridays and the, the big uh, uh, NBC Tuesdays and Thursdays had back in the time when they would have millions and millions and millions of viewers tuning in and you could go to work and talk about something that you had seen on TV the night before with the high probability that you would find uh, numerous other people who had watched the exact same thing. And he called television in the 90s the big church. And I thought, you know, he has a point there. Because television played a profound role in shaping the way people thought about culture and morality and right and wrong and how things actually are. Whether it did a service or a disservice, I thought he was very right. And to hear a non-Christian use that title for such a thing, the big church, certainly stuck into a pastor's mind. And then in the very next episode, seemingly oblivious to the contrast... He went back to his hometown of Canada where his mother and father, who were Christians, and numerous other Christian people in their community had taken it upon themselves to petition the government to allow their, um, their local uh, regionality in, in Ottawa to take in um, Vietnamese um, immigrants who had been displaced by war uh, at that point in time. And the government said, we cannot take these immigrants in because we do not have the resources as a government to care for them. 
And so uh, Malcolm Gladwell's family, as well as numerous other churches, worked together to petition the government that if you allow them to come in, we will provide for them. And so they did. And the profound impact. And this podcast even had a biblical verse as the title of it. And at the end of the podcast, um, all of these people who had regathered to remember this time, all of them, as far as I can tell, Christians, except for Malcolm Gladwell, read the verse together. And it was the passage where Jesus says, For I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And, and so on and so forth. And... Those two podcasts back to back left me as a pastor simply shaking my head that someone could be so blind as to the place of our culture today after the effects of the big church of mass media versus the place of the culture that he grew up in dominated by an understanding of what Jesus had called people to do in the world around them. And so it must be recognized that there is a message of compassion preached by the Lord Jesus that should challenge us to the deepest core of who we are. When Jesus looks at the man and says, Go and do thou likewise, he is challenging the man. Challenging him. Not to neglect those who are in need around him. Even if he does not agree with them politically. Even if... They are enemies in all other contexts. But to love and show compassion, that is the challenge. And when I see things that are good in the world, they more often spring from the challenge of Jesus Christ than anything else in the world around us. Now, some churches preach this sort of message week in and week out every Sunday. And I hope to an extent that is true of us that we are being challenged to love others and to show compassion and to do good. So that's the first part of the story, the parable. But that's not the whole story. There is more going on here in this chapter than just that message. Should we do good? Should we be compassionate? Is it wrong to neglect those in need around us? We would answer positively to all of those things. But there is more going on here than that. And if we stop there, we might all go home feeling challenged and feeling, you know, that we should go out and do good things, but we would miss the point of what has just happened here. And so we must back up because the lawyer asked Jesus two questions. So it's going somewhat in reverse here. Look at the second question. The second question the lawyer asked this in verse 29. When we read, but wanting to justify himself, this man said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So that's how we got the story. This man turns to Jesus and asks a clarification to the Old Testament commandment to love one's neighbor. And this man asks, okay, who is my neighbor? And then we have the parable. And Jesus responds in verse 36, bringing it back to this man's question when he says, which of these three do you think was this man's neighbor. So this parable, as, as great as it is, as challenging as it is, is spoken in the context of, of two questions. And Jesus is framing it all around those two questions so that he launches into it at the beginning of the second question and at the conclusion of the parable, he points back to it. Who is this man's 
neighbor. And of course, the, the lawyer at, no, at this point is, is uh, entrapped to, to an extent and must say, well, the, the one who, who was his neighbor was the one who took care of him. The one who, in verse 37, showed mercy on him. And then Jesus answers, go and do thou likewise. So there's a question that's being answered here. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus is replying that we should show mercy on all who need help. That is a good sentiment. But there is a problem. A problem. Because if you look at verse 29, it says, when the man asked the question, that he asked it wanting to justify himself. Now, what does that mean? This man, who was himself an expert of the Old Testament law, wanted a way of understanding the Old Testament that would allow him to judge his own life and come to the conclusion, I am a righteous man. It's a bit like, like hearing the Bible and then looking at the Bible and looking at yourself and saying, how can I understand the Bible in such a way that leaves me innocent? And there are many people that do that. Here is what the Bible says. Here is what I read. Now, how might I interpret this in such a way that leaves me guiltless in the way that I'm living my life? There are many people who come to church and hear challenging sermons or who come to Sunday school and hear challenging lessons or who open their Bible in various studies all throughout the week and they respond to these challenges by saying, now, how can I understand this challenge in a way that requires no change on my part? How can I understand what I'm hearing in a way that justifies the way that I'm behaving or the way that I'm acting or the way that I'm living so that I am not condemned at all by what I'm understanding here, but instead I can feel good about myself and carry on just as I was before? Now, that is what the man is doing. And then Jesus tells a parable that if we are honest, leaves us with virtually no hope. I can hear the story of the Good Samaritan and I can be challenged that I should show compassion to my neighbors who in this story would seem to be anyone who I see in need around me. And if I'm being honest, I have no shot of passing that morality test. Do you know how many people I see in need around me every single day? A lot. The answer is a lot. Do you know how many times I stop everything that I'm doing and get out of my car to go help them? Not all of them. Not all of them. So there is a real problem with this story. And we shouldn't change it to say, well, if you do it sometimes, that's pretty much what the parable is saying. That's not what the parable is saying. This lawyer would like it if that's what the parable was saying because then he could justify himself and I could justify myself. I could drive by the guy that I see going to McDonald's and I could say, I just don't have time today and keep going. 
And then later in the day, thinking about it, considering it, if my mind even goes to it at all, I could tell myself, yes, you didn't do anything today, but you've done things in the past. Everything's good. You're a good person. But I don't think that's the point. And let me show you why. We have to go back to the first question. What started this whole thing? And that's in verse 25. Because if you look at verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that is a big question. Not the kind of question that I get asked every day. That is a big question. And Jesus responds to them, You know what's written in the law? The implication being, Keep the law. You know? So you know what's written in the law. What is your reading of it? Now, when Jesus asks, what is your reading of the law? He's asking the man very directly, how would you answer this question about inheriting eternal life and being a righteous person? Hey, you're an expert in the law. How would you answer this question? What, what is the law to you? What does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to be a righteous person? And he answered and he said two things. One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's a quote from the Old Testament. That's from the law. And here's a different quote from a different place in the law. And love your neighbor as yourself. So the man says, I'm, I'm a, an expert on the law. I can, I can recite it to you in large pieces. When people are not sure about the righteous thing, they come and appeal to me and I help them decide what it is that uh, is right and what it is that, that's wrong. This is this man's profession. It's his place in Israel. And he says, in my summation of the law, I think it all boils down to these two commands, which is a correct reading. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we must add, because that's love directed toward God, we must add, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's directed towards others. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. What does he mean live? Does he mean you'll avoid being struck by lightning? Does he mean you'll have a long and prosperous life? No, because that is not what the man asked. The man asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He is talking about what we call heaven. He's talking about life forever with God. And Jesus says, what's your interpretation of the law? Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do those two things and you go to heaven. You will live forever. You will have peace with God. You will be justified. It's interesting to me, and I don't know if you caught this, that when the man seeks to justify himself, he doesn't speak about the first command. He just takes that one for granted. Do you notice that? Like, the first part was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He doesn't, he doesn't ask for any clarification. He just assumes, I've got that part down. You know, have you ever shown somebody, maybe you've shown someone like how to operate a machine or something, and you take a lot of time to like show them the, the opening steps of how you get everything started, and they're paying attention, and then they want to leap past the, to the later stages, and you're like, hold on, I think we should go over what we talked about in the beginning, and they just assure you, no, no, I've got that part down. And you look at them, and you're like, 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure you do. You know? Okay, well, just show me so that I feel good. Like, I just, what do you think I told you to do? Show me what you think I told you. Have you ever had a situation? I've had that situation all the time. I know that it's Super Bowl Sunday, and all throughout America, there are big showmans with their football jerseys, and the whole sermon is going to be some relationship to football. And I'm not going to do that, but if you'll allow me one sports analogy today, I, I uh, have most often in my life coached very small uh, players, and I love it when they come to practice for the first time, having made the team, and I say, all right, we're going to play some basketball, and, it's like, and they all want to, that what they want to do is they want to go shoot and score. And I say, well, we're going to work on defense, and they assure me, I I know how to play defense. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying, I don't think you do. You know, <laughs> show me what you think you're supposed to do. And it's, that's how I feel about this. It's like, how can you blow over the part where we're commanded to love God with everything that we have? I, I am a pastor. I do not do that. I'm just being honest with you. I have not done that. I do not do that. And though I will continue to struggle, I don't think I'm going to do that. Now, I could add the the postscript of, I don't do that very well, or I don't do that all the time. I could... But those are almost self-justification phrases, aren't they? Because they imply that I do it most of the time. But whether I do it most of the time is not the question. Because the command is to do it with everything, which implies all the time. And so I must confess here, I don't do that. And when it comes to loving your neighbor, I've already spoken to that. I don't do that either. This man looked at at these good instructions about love and compassion and doing good things. And he wanted to find a way to interpret them that excused himself. And look, while you are in your life going around doing loving and compassionate things for other people, which you are commanded to do as a Christian, while you're doing that, do not be mistaken into justifying yourself, seeing, see, I'm good. See, I'm good. See, I'm good. I have heard what the Bible says, and now I'm doing these good things. See, I am good. You're no better than a lawyer if you do that. You're not good. That's the point Jesus is making. I'm not good. It's why he looks at the man and says, just go and do that. Because he knows the man can't. And in the follow-up, he just nails that guy to the wall, doesn't he? Just go do what, that, what, what the Samaritan did. Nobody can live that way. So here's the application. Here's what I think you have to take away from this, okay? So I'll just give you three things, three application things. We're not, we won't talk about them for very long. One, I should love God with all of my heart, and I should love my neighbor as myself. Should. I should love God with all of my heart. I should love my neighbor as myself. That ought to be my passion. That ought to be my endeavor as I live faithfully before the Lord. That should be what I am about. Two, I confess that I am not that man. I am a sinner and there is no way to justify the way that I live my life. So that's one and two. I should be this. Two, confession, I am not this. Three, 
I need to trust Jesus for salvation. I need to trust Jesus for forgiveness because I cannot trust myself. If I'm honest to say I confess I am not that man, then I need a salvation that I cannot afford, that I cannot earn, that I cannot accomplish. I need Jesus. Now I'll leave you with a verse from Galatians chapter 2, which lays this out very clearly. And this is from Paul, who himself was formerly a Pharisee. He was like this man. He looked at the law, and he tried to understand the law in a way that would justify himself so that he could live his life in a way that deserved heaven. And now Paul is a Christian, and he has come face to face with what inherently, inwardly, we already know is true. We know that we are not perfect people. We know we are sinners. And now Paul has come face to face with that, and he himself has trusted Jesus. And he writes this verse in Galatians chapter 2. We'll close at the reading of it. This is verse 16. Knowing, we know, that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's what we just read. We know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even when we have believed in Christ Jesus, that's when justification comes. That's when you become a Christian so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. When we read the law of God, we are reading our own condemnation. We are reading our need for all of the various sacrifices that the Old Testament calls for. And they all point to Christ. And that is where I become a good person. I become a good person at the cross. I do not become a good person at the corner of McDonald's. I do not become a good person at camp in the summer. I do not become a good person in the pulpit on Sunday. Or after school with children. Where I become a good person is at the cross of Jesus because there he has paid for all of my evil and offered me eternal forgiveness and life with God. That's where Reggie is justified and that's the only justification for any man, woman, or child. So I would challenge you to trust Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the time to share in it. I pray that we will consider these things. Um, that if anyone here is convincing themselves that they are a good person, not in need of trusting Jesus, not in need of becoming a disciple of Jesus and patterning his or her life after the life of your son, that you will put an end to that false ideology right now, that you will crush that and that they will look in the mirror and see themselves as they truly are. And having seen such a sinful person, they will go running to the cross in faith, seeking the goodness of your Son there. 
Thank you for the work of salvation you've done in our lives. I ask, Father, as we regather next week, that there will be many with us who need to hear the gospel and that your people will be faithful to bring them. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.